0: This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our StrikeTape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking wind site owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we've got an exciting episode. Uh, First, we're going to chat through a couple different environmental uh, issues. Missouri's been having some issues with BATS. Ameren, which is one of the big um, electrical utilities out in the Midwest, uh, has had to shut down some turbines due to BATS, so we'll talk about some of the issues there. Um, We're also going to chat a little bit about pile driving noise as it relates to offshore wind construction, which is a big issue with the our friendly um, undersea mammals because obviously sound travels very fast underwater and pile driving is very very loud Uh, we'll also chat a little bit about a interesting um, case in australia where a man living in a remote off-the-grid cabin uh, is suing one of the wind farms out there for uh, just the essentially the whooshing noise that um, comes from these blades tearing through the uh, through the atmosphere. So we'll talk a little bit about that and what might come of it. And then uh, we have a great uh, friend of the Uptime podcast today. Michael Holm from Coates is joining us to talk about humidity issues in wind turbines. So look for that in about 15 minutes. Um, great conversation with him on all the ins and outs of humidity and what damage it can do uh, to wind turbines onshore and offshore and some of their technology behind it. And then lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the GE Siemens Gamesa patent lawsuit, which has just gotten a new ruling. And of course, Siemens Gamesa is going to appeal that ruling. We'll talk through some of the implications there at the end, but a very full show today um, and our first friend of uptimes so we're excited to talk to a uh, humidity expert michael holm in a little bit But before we get going, let me remind you one last time, uh, sign up for uptime tech news, which you'll find in the show notes or description of this podcast. And again, that's our weekly update newsletter where you'll just get, Hey, here's the new podcast. Here's some great uh, insider news around the the wind industry and renewable energy industry. And you can uh, sign up for that in the show notes of this podcast. A great way to stay connected if you enjoy the show and want to stay up to date on everything, wind energy, renewable energy and tech. No Rosemary Barnes today. Uh, she's out of the office, but we'll look for her next week. And of course, be sure to sign up for her YouTube channel. Subscribe in the show notes as well. So Alan, let's start with uh, Missouri. So one of their largest wind farms is not running at night because they've had issues with bats and they don't want to kill. There's an endangered species out there that they don't want to kill. So kudos to Amarin for making the decision to to shut these off. They've honestly, it seems like they've taken the high road and say, yeah, we're going to we're going to err on the side of caution and with this species but people are not happy that because they're not running 24 7 they're losing a, sig- a significant amount of capacity that it sounds like amaran wants to pass on to ratepayers. so um alan this seems like it's a pretty big issue
1: yeah it, and it's this is going to grow in terms of an issue particularly in the united states because there's such a wide variety of uh of, of wildlife birds bats uh that around wind turbines quite a good bit. And uh, as the number of wind turbines increases and the density of them increases, you're going to find places as uh, you know, birds and bats are sort of migratory creatures. When you re- initially cited the wind turbine location, you had done a survey. They obviously do surveys of bats and, and birds in, in the area. And things change over time. So now Ameren is forced to shut down their wind turbines from essentially dusk until dawn, which is then, uh, you know, they, they are losing a, a big revenue source from that because they're not creating power and selling power. And yet they have this capital expense of all these wind turbines. So now Ameren is going back to the ratepayers and saying, we need more money to cover our costs because we can't generate as much electricity. The sort of a circular fight that's going to develop here. The you have to wonder if something in this equation is missing right now. You know what's what's the dog that's not barking in this little bit of a fight, which is there are means to mitigate bats and birds around wind turbines. We've we've talked about them on the podcast a couple of different times, and you and you wonder. Have they implemented some of those changes? I know there's been some researchers down at Texas State University, I believe that's where they are, that have done a a, a number of studies of how to repel bats away from wind turbines and to mitigate some of the losses there. But none of the articles we've seen talk about that, which is a little strange Uh, Because maybe Ameren is playing the longer game here and is is going to want to implement something like that, but they're going to obviously have to seek regulatory approval before they go ahead and install bat repellent or uh, bird repellent systems in in Missouri, right? so, don't, Dan, do you see how this gets, like, super complicated really fast and then eventually it all seems to revolve around the money?
0: Yeah, I mean, because if Ameren said, hey, you know, this was going to be the rate based on 24 hours of production per day and now it's at 16, uh, that's – yeah, that's a big rate increase for them to make things add up. And, of course, the pushback is that, hey, you guys knew where you were building this wind farm and you, you knew – what potential environmental risks there were when you got this permit. And they did get, you know, they got a permit um, from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services to operate in a way that was going to be eco friendly. Um, But they still, yeah, they knew the risk. So it's like, why should we pay for your mistake if you didn't, you know, figure this out ahead of time? Or why don't you just put this somewhere else? You know, there's other land like Missouri has quite a bit (laughs) of flat land, as you know, growing up in Wichita (laughs) and I lived in Illinois. many years that's not to say it's not owned by someone obviously but you know there's a lot of places you could potentially put a wind farm but that they settled on this one and it's not working out that well so they're you know why should the rate payers fix and pay for their mistake that's the big the big question all right so moving on um in in a similar vein just a different um you know sort of scenario is uh we've got to figure out a way to mitigate sound when and do and doing these offshore wind installations and you know marine animals are having a tough time coping with some of these human stressors so there's a lot of technology out there that needs to be improved needs to be developed um, to attenuate some of this noise because i mean alan have you heard pile driving is there any like major construction around you there's some here in dc that i've walked by i actually walked by a a new building where they were driving piles and of course it's like a they have like an explosive shot that drives the, the pile driver. So every, you know, hundreds of times a day as they're as they're starting the foundations of these buildings, it's you hear this little mini explosion. Sounds like a very loud gunshot followed by this piston col- you know, colliding at high speed with this steel beam. Right. It's incredibly loud. Like you don't want to even be a couple blocks from it. So you can imagine some of these whales, um, animals that have incredible um you know they they navigate the world through sonar right this has got to be incredibly disruptive to them if i mean if not just downright harmful so some of these systems where they're encasing the piles um almost like give it a sort of like a barrier so they're driving the pile inside it and they've got this sort of um this tube around it to help attenuate some of it um they're trying gravity-based foundations there's a lot of efforts to make um to reduce this but you know, pile driving is over 200 decibels, which is again crazy, crazy loud. I mean, h- how much do you feel like we can actually do this, though? I mean, driving piles into the earth, <laughs> no matter whether it's subsea or not or otherwise, is is it takes a lot of energy to do that.
1: It does, and and that's why it's it's so noisy, right? Is that you're trying to drive an object into the ground and the ground doesn't want it in there, so you just have to overcome it with force, and that force creates obviously a lot of noise and the the difficulty. Onshore in, in in suburban environments and big cities, is it does create so much noise that they, they actually limit the times in which those things can operate, right? So they don't operate them at ten o'clock at night, for example. So humans do not like the noise, and obviously uh, wildlife and uh, creatures in the sea are not going to like it either. I think this is a one of those uh, pieces of technology we don't think about very much, right? That that the wind turbine industry in general is 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 looking out for the wildlife and the environment in which they're operating in so they're trying to develop different pieces of engineering to uh, to dampen the noise uh, as they put these pilings into the ocean and it makes me wonder with this advent of and and the the proximity of floating wind that because this noise of, of driving the pilings and doing all this work can be rather difficult, does it make sense to, to, to move to something like a floating wind platform where you don't have to drive pilings in like that uh, just because one is probably cheaper to, to do in terms of this, uh, you're not driving pilings. But secondarily, the environmental aspects may overcome the sort of the, te- the technical aspects where uh, you're going to have rules at some point They're going to limit how much noise uh, you can make when driving a piling into the ocean floor. That will happen in the United States, I guarantee it. And don't you think it's going to happen in Europe if it hasn't happened already?
0: Yeah, probably. And, of course, it sounds like these gravity-based foundations are like the way to go because you're essentially just sinking a gigantic concrete block that's going to sit on the top of the seabed. And if it's big and heavy enough, that should do fine, right? Um, I actually heard a fun fact about our Capitol that on top of the the Washington, D.C. Capitol building – there's a you know, there's a statue. Um, I don't I can't remember the figure who's up there. I think it's a, like a lady lady liberty kind of thing. Um, don't quote me on it. But apparently it's so heavy that it's not actually anchored. It's like solid cast iron that it's so heavy that it didn't need to be anchored. So it's just like, wow, many, many tons <laughs> don't matter how hard the wind blows. It ain't moving. Right. So kind of the same yeah. thing. Um, and obviously, if you're just sinking stuff. But, you know, one of the challenges that those gigantic um, gravity based like blocks essentially would need to be manufactured locally. But again, 3D printing, you know, like that could be you know, and making these um, these things at the port is going to make a lot more sense. So as we continue to push towards like the local materials, local workers, you know, 3D printing where you can just make some of these things a lot easier without having to build a gigantic concrete plant, um, then hopefully that will probably win out because, I mean, yeah, you just think about yeah, you make a bridge you're going to drive pilings for a while but then you're going to stop if you're right. installing a hundred turbines offshore for example uh, which would be a really which would be a really big farm in one location yeah of course there could be thousands in the grand scheme of things but in one location you're driving pilings for uh, years on an end maybe right like just continuing right. to drive pilings and if there's whales and and all these bigger creatures in that area not that the smaller creatures don't matter because they do but I mean, you could just see like there could be uh, tons of whales turning up dead on a, on a beach because this relentless pounding over many, many months and years just could just ruin them. And it's it'd be really sad. So hopefully, yeah, yeah they can figure this out because, of course, with the aircraft industry, that's a they're constantly trying to reduce some of that noise. And there's huge environmental studies. If you want to put a, another runway into an airport, if you want to increase capacity at an airport, um, you know, I, I had a friend who did these environmental studies and they had to figure out how much noise, if we want to add a runway or we want to increase how many planes can land here each day, what's that going to do to the noise to the surrounding communities and the, and the wildlife? It's a, it's a really complex problem. Uh, so, so moving on here, this is a interesting trial over in Australia. Um, there's a Victorian wind farm that's been a nuisance to some neighbors. Now, one of these neighbors, uh, bought a property in 2008. Um, with the knowledge that a wind farm would be built there. So the farm was approved in 2004. Construction started in 2011. And again, this man bought the property in 2008. Um, And of course, it started operating in 2015. Um, And now he says he can't sleep, often has to sleep in his car, kind of drive far away to to kind of get away from him. Um, And it's just and this is kind of like the human equivalent of the pile driving, right? I mean, a whale might not be able to get away from, from this. That's like their native area. So, um, how, what do you, you read this article? What do you, what do you think about this situation? Obviously it's difficult. This man's living off the grid in a cabin he built really kind of out in the wilderness. Um, how, how, how can a person coexist with a wind farm like this? And is it, is it kind of a, he said, she said thing?
1: It is. It's very similar, I think, to, uh people who buy a house near an airport and then complain about the, <laughs> the air, air traffic over top of the house, you know you know it's there it's, and you know there's going to be airplanes flying over it, but you still decided to to buy the home knowing that and then you want to complain all the time and close down the airport, which has happened multiple times in the United States where they have closed airports or limited airports, California comes to mind. Where they've limited airport access to certain times a day because the neighbors are complaining okay and and wind turbines are going to go through that same sort of evolution now they haven't had a universal edict like airplanes have like airplanes uh, manufactured in any part of the world have noise requirements like as part of getting certified to be an operational aircraft you have to meet certain noise requirements wind turbines haven't done that yet but we're rapidly getting on that pathway and if we're going down that pathway, that means we need to develop quieter blade systems, right? Because um, I think this kind of problem that's highlighted in Australia is going is repeated all over the United States right now. You see all, all kinds of complaints about the noise, flicker, and 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 those need to work themselves out, right? But I think as a, as the industry, the wind turbine industry evolves, there's going to be certain things that we do to make the blades quieter, very similar to what we do on, on sort of jet engines. I know that the technologies are different and the environments different, and how they operate is different, right? But we have made a lot of, of, of uh, progress in terms of the way the aerodynamics on a wind turbine blade even work. We're using supercomputers to design them now, which we didn't used to do. So you know they're they're getting better. Uh, the question is. Are you going to end up in court all the time for these noise issues? And I you know, feel sorry for this guy in, in Australia. What are you going to do? I, I guess you're going to have to just move yourself away from the situation, which is not not ideal.
0: Yeah, it, it's hard to know because one person's experience like no one's privy to the way he internalizes it. You know, whether it's as loud as he says it is like that, they're roaring. No, I mean, no one no one can say. So really, at that point, it's right. just like, well, should you have? Built your house here, you know, knowing that this wind farm was approved and this could be a potential thing, which it yeah. turned out to be. So, yeah, it's complicated. But again, like you yes. you don't know, everyone could internalize a different. I mean, I had a similar problem. I had an apartment where a, a nightclub moved on underneath it. I had to move two year two months later. It was incredibly loud. I think most people would have had the same issues that I had, but not everyone. Some people can sleep through, a, you know, a freight train rolling down the street. You know, and so it's it's hard to know. Cause again, like yeah. we don't know what the whales underneath the sea how they feel about pile driving. We don't exactly know this man's experience. Um, so there's definitely some some give and take there. Um, so we're going to transition now to our uh, conversation with Michael Holm from Coates. He is the uh, chief commercial officer for Coats, and of course, if you don't know much about Coats, they do commercial uh, dehumidification, dry air systems for lots of different industries. One of which is wind. Um, so they've got some really interesting tech and of course with offshore being such a big deal, um, and such a boom in offshore development now, uh, and with such a harsh environment over, you know, off offshore, this is going to become more and more of a, of a significant conversation with insurance underwriters, um, between the manufacturers and operators, just to make sure these machines can operate not just for the first couple years without problem but you know long into the future and one thing to note um you know we've had a lot of guests on the show and you know al and i are wearing our 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 collars here but uh, Michael Holmes, a, a fun guy and, and, and was rocking his ACDC uh, T-shirt for the interview because he's more than just a suit. Uh, he knows his stuff, but um, he wanted to rock his uh, his ACDC. So we appreciate that about him. So without further ado, we're going to kick to our conversation with a uh, friend of Uptime, Michael Holm from Coats. All right, so we're here with uh, Michael Holm from Coates. Let's talk a little bit about humidity. We've chatted uh, getting ready for this, this episode about it being a bit of a, a hidden devil. Um, one of those things that kind of gets you know tossed aside, not as much um, considered in some of the planning and some of the construction. And one of those things like, ah, you know, why do we need that? But obviously not everything can be coated inside of a, a wind turbine, right? Whether you're in the nacelle or the tower, um, not everything can be galvanized, like not everything can be, um, you know, weatherproof from from humidity, which is you know, as a gas is just going to reach and out and touch pretty much any surface um, within these. So, so what do people need to know about the components that are maybe at the highest risk from you know some sustained humidity within a within a wind turbine?
2: Yeah, but first of all, let me say you know maybe you you also you're also are good to go in the first couple of years because you won't see any problems. So you won't see any humidity related issues before you say four or five years down the road, typically after warranty runs out on your turbines. But after that, then you'll see you say, the long-term effects. And that, you know, electrical systems are the most – the items or the components that you, are, of course, have to be you know, most critical about because, you know, water and electronics don't mix very well. But then it also goes into um, – it could be on some of the mechanical stuff because then you'll see you start see corrosion. And also from a health and safety point of view, you'll see mold growth.
0: So this is something that people definitely need to plan for the future. Like like you said, they're not going to see any any issues in the first couple of years. But what are some – besides corrosion, I mean – uh, arc flashes—is that something that people could potentially worry about?
2: In terms of arc flashes, of course, if you have a lot of humidity, you can see these kind of things happening, and we have seen, um, you know, transformers or converter modules basically blowing up uh, due to
0: high humidity. And that's just when it starts to condense, or is it the humidity itself?
2: That is, of course, you have high humidity levels, and then, of course, then you will see when you then start powering up that t- that turbine or that component, then you you know the power will simply just jump you know, and do a shortcut because, you know, water leads electricity. Simple as that.
0: Um, Alan, you're, you're an electrical engineer. I mean, is this something that's been plaguing a lot of industries? Is this new to, to wind turbines? I mean, y- you know, you've been obviously dedicated a lot of your career to lightning protection, but um, how much of the environment do, do people need to worry about with any, like, heavy machinery?
1: In any large piece of machinery, water and condensation are a huge problem. I know we talk a lot about aircraft on our other podcasts but aircraft accumulate water in in buckets gallons on a, on a flight from condensation and, and it's a it's a tremendous problem there on wind turbines it's the same sort of issue but it's slightly different in the sense that a lot of wind turbines are located near the water or in the water and and there's so much electrical equipment particularly expensive electrical equipment in a wind turbine today uh, condensation and water accumulation combined with dirt and salt leads to electrical problems throughout the turbine. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when these problems are going to occur. So keeping the humidity controlled inside of the wind turbine is really critical for that long service life.
0: And so, Michael, I mean, a lot of a lot of services are coded, right? I mean, are, are there any services within a, a turbine, whether it's a tower, than a cell, that that aren't coated that are maybe getting touched by humidity and then seeing that corrosion later on? I mean, why couldn't they just coat everything?
2: Yeah, they could. But there's also a cost perspective into this and, you know, in the lack of, say, knowing better, you know, people have just, you know, doing, you know, C5 or C4 or even, uh, you know, yeah, C5 offshore on the internals of a turbine because they didn't know any better. And that's just driving up costs un- unnecessary. So, if you can control the environment, you can go for a lower corrosion class, or you can go for lower IP classes on your elect- elect- uh, electrical components. Um, but then people have just tried to, um, you know, to pe- protect themselves in the best possible way. Then, you know, then, then they know knew how to solve it.
0: Can you speak a little more about that? About that? So, I'm not that familiar with the different classes of, of like coatings and corrosion protection. So, what you said, a lot of people just try to combat this from a coating standpoint and just throw the thickest, like most protective coating on. Is that right? And whereas exactly. they could probably go a little cheaper and make it easier on themselves just by de- dehumidifying.
2: Exactly. So we see this, you know, in other industries where, you know, inside on the inside of bridges, are all the big constructions that don't even paint, they just keep it dry because that will save them at, you know, tons of paint. So it will lighten the weight of the structure, but also in terms of owing them and maintenance and also just, Imagine that, you know, you have a guy, a service technician crawling up the inside of the turbine. He chips the paint. Then the, you need to send out a new guy to, to, uh, to, uh, to um, repair this, uh, this damage. And so it, it's, it's just layer after layer after layer. But I've been into the wind industry for, yeah, 13 years or so. And, you know, I think it's, it's sometimes, you know, some kind of involvement that, you know, at that point when you start doing this, you know, you had other bigger issues of battles to fight. And now this mm-hmm. comes up.
0: Yeah. So it's one of those things that's kind of insidious where you don't think much about it. And then five exactly. years later, you're like, man, we've got a lot of issues.
2: And like 15 years ago or 20 years ago, you know, a turbine was built like you know, um, a John Deere tractor, old school kind of thing. You know, It was you know, heavy duty metal and not so much electronic components. And that has now changed. Mm-hmm but you still live with old, you know with old designs
0: yeah so the, and the, the more mechanical systems probably were much more resilient to, to humidity and some yes. of these other environmental conditions yeah yep. that makes sense so okay so so what does an operator do if they don't have a de- dehumidifier installed like is there have there been sort of like like folk solutions like do they turn up the heaters like do they ventilate like what, what do they they do if they or what are some of the things that people do that maybe work or maybe don't work, or are they maybe just sort of trying, hope, hoping to get some sort of result from it?
2: Exactly what you are saying. You know, folklore solutions like you know getting you know uh, you know external heater, try to you know blow up the the tower to dry it out, or big fans of ventilators. Um, in some parts, they also in in, in you know some also install small. You know, what is called heating elements inside the electric electrical cabinets, you know, to heat it up and you know make the water you know, evaporate. Um, the downside to that is, of course, you stress the electronic components because you start heating them up. Um, you can, in fact, retrofit a turbine with a dehumidifier. It's not a big deal.
0: Gotcha. So those those, I mean, are people starting to get away from those solutions? I mean, is that going to make? It sounds like that exacerbate the problem because I don't know, Alan. Is the cocktail what humidity plus salt Plus heat—that's probably like the the worst cocktail. Am I right?
1: Uh, well, uh, being cool is tends to be the worst because it condensates, and then you have these conductive oh, paths created true. by the that's salt and, and the and the water. But Michael's right—the the heater I- implementation, which I've seen on electrical cabinets uh, has its own problems and it really decreases the lifetime of the electro- electrical electronic components. Transistor type equipment doesn't like to be hot and so the more it's hot the, the, the shorter its lifespan will be so it's going in the wrong direction. It's fixing one problem but it's creating probably a more expensive problem uh, secondarily which is n- not the right way to go. You need to remove the water from the air. That's what you need to do.
0: Okay, so when you know if you're a, an operator and you get your turbines from ge or sizzle or siemens Gamesa or whoever vestus um is it is it highly site specific or is there like a, a suggested you know keep your turbine uh either this well coated or at this humidity level and, and don't exceed it or or how does that dialogue go about you know the difference in installing a turbine in one site versus another and then like maintaining the right humidity level where you know, everything is going to go according to plan over the lifetime of that turbine?
2: So it's site-specific. Spe- site so the OEM will then suggest, you know, for this side you need a C5 or C4 corrosion class. And I think that's, you know, I think they agree all, you can say, on, say, on the local weather conditions, you know, they look up into uh, some, some weather data and say, this is a C5 environment or whatever. So, but we, on the other hand, we actually see now some, developers and operators now start setting demands and, you can say, humidity or, you can say, climate criteria to the turbine. Oh, so, sorry, to the OEMs. So, say, okay, you have to control the humidity on the inside uh, during transport, construction and operation of the turbine. Um, so, we don't accept, you know, anything above 60% relative humidity because, and uh, then, you know, we are afraid that this will harm, you know, our product. So, and then you can say, as a from an owner point of view, it's like, I don't care how you solve it, Mr. OEM, you just need to solve it.
0: Whether that's coatings or humidifier or dehumidifier exactly. or whatever. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. I and mean, then that makes sense because as a manufacturer, you don't want to have all these warranty claims that you're like, hey, if you're taking better care of this, this wouldn't be an issue. Like you wouldn't have fried electronics if there wasn't all this condensation inside the turbine.
2: Exactly. And also on the side here, you have the insurance companies. They'll say, we will not insure also, even you know, the f- banks we will not finance this project unless this turbine has a certain, you know, a specific corrosion class or any kind of protection in, into it, you know, also simple as that.
0: Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the, ins- the onshore versus offshore. Obviously, um, offshore installations—they're much more aware of, of the harsh environment. What, what are some of the pieces that are especially at risk um, in an offshore, offshore installation?
2: It's more or less the same. It's just on a bigger scale. It's more remote. It's you know, it's it's less accessible. You know, you could be 50 miles out offshore, and you only go—you can only go to this site, you know, two or three times a year. So if you have failure, you don't want to go out, uh, you know, now and then and stop the turbine. It's too expensive. So you say the stakes are simply just higher, but the same thing can fail.
0: And, but I, I would there be more protection? Like, I mean, the foundations, like transition pieces, the substations, I mean, is it, it's, it's, it's yeah, got to yeah. be everything, right? Yeah,
2: so of, of course, on the, inter- on the externals, everything is you know C5 or C6, uh, you know, corrosion, you know, offshore corrosion class. It's like in the oil and gas industry. And on the inside they were also tried to protect as much. We worked with some of the OEMs and say with a dehumidifier, we can then go for a C3 or C2 corrosion class because there's a huge cost out opportunities in lowering your corrosion class on the internal side. So if you have a well say function uh, say climate protection system inside your turbine, you could go down to a low corrosion class. And that's you know that's, that's backed by industry standards here.
0: And then onshore, obviously, the the the, the environments to be very different, but also still highly variable, whereas there almost there might be even a little more consistency in the, the fact that the environment's always harsh out, out at sea. Right. But if you have a turbine and, you know, somewhere really north, um, you know, humidity might be much less of a problem. I mean, what 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 differences do you see in different parts of the world as far as onshore and what they have to do to to protect from this?
2: Yeah, I think we see different symptoms, but, you know, I will say more or less all over the world, onshore turbines also have a humidity uh, climate challenge and an issue. Um, you know, you could find turbines in California or in the Gobi Desert that, you know, you know, they're in a very nice and dry environment. They don't need it. But if you go to, to the Mexican Gulf to Texas or, you know, you know, to inland climate, hot days, cold nights, you will see condensation building up as you know, as the temperature rises throughout the day. Yeah, you go to here in Denmark, you know, and you have, you know, lots of rain, you know, more than 100, 100 days a year, you know, you also have high humidity issues. Um, so, yeah, going to the Philippines or in Vietnam, I've seen, you know, onshore turbines, you know, being put up, uh, you know, you say on a rice field, you know, it's semi-offshore, right? So it, it's everywhere. And actually on the on the onshore side, you and I can be I could be a little bit off here but they'll say you actually have you know offshore climate as much as you know 15 to 20 miles inland because of all the salt and 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 the wind coming in from the from the sea
1: I want to discuss uh, the, the, the... Internal factors like mold. And mold is a, a big growing problem in industry because now we realize the health consequences of, of workers around mold and, and bumping into mold that they didn't suspect was there and causing breathing problems and actually long term health consequences from some of the particular kinds of molds like black mold. Uh, and, and are we seeing more of the industry? drive to make sure that the air inside of a turbine doesn't have mold, that they're actually not just worried about the turbine itself, but worried about the people who are going to be working inside that environment. And, and has that changed? Has that, has that sort of regulation and, and thought process changed recently?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, for, for, for a long time, uh, you know, you know, larger corporations, operators, you know, they have a zero tolerance when it comes to mold. Um, and then it's, just a matter of, you know, detecting it, you know, how big should this black spot be before we see an issue? Um, Some are super concerned about this. Others say, hmm, let's wait until someone complain. But all in all, you know, it's not acceptable.
1: Yeah. And just dehumidifying that can really control the amount of mold that would even occur. So once it starts, it seems like it's very difficult to get rid of. In fact, if, if you have a mold problem inside of a wind turbine, you have to call a special company to come in to remove it. It gets very expensive very quickly. And it would seem like the, the, the cost trade off of having someone come in, constantly remove mold versus have a, a dehumidifying yeah. system doesn't even make sense, right? You, the dehumidifier is such a lower expense lifetime versus the exactly. constant risk right
2: exactly of course now once you have mold there you know dehumidifier cannot remove it so you need someone who can clean it up and then you can install a dehumidifier to prevent it from coming again and right there's also another thing it's like you know we don't like water inside the turbine so why do you go there and, and start rinsing it off you know with the um with a you know with a power cleaner you know it, it, it's it's it makes no sense to me.
0: Yeah, those all seem like pretty pretty terrible tasks to go power wash with some disinfectant all the internal services looking for mold. That sounds awful.
2: Yeah, and just imagine if you also have to go out and do this offshore. I like, you know the, the cost. I know incremental in this. You know, it's it's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, Michael, the 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 technology that you have is really interesting because one of the things I would worry about having a dehumidification system in, in a wind turbine, particularly offshore, is how many? How reliable is it? Can it stay out there for years at a time and not need servicing? And just looking at your technology, you, you have a very uh, maybe simplistic from the outside. I'm sure it's complicated on the inside technology. Would you like to explain how that te- technology works and how that system works generally?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, we do what is referred to as an absorption dehumidifier. So there's different ways of you can you can dry out stuff. You probably know you know the dry bags uh, from Home Depot. Um, they have some kind of silica gel in in them. The downside with these is like once they're full, they're full, and then they actually work as a sponge, and you need to go out and replace them. Um, then you have something what is referred to as a condensation dehumidifier that has you know a cooling surface. So you need to cool the air in order to get the water out. Um, when you go below around you no. Know, 15, 20 degrees Celsius, it becomes very energy inefficient to to cool cool the air to get the water out. And then we have this adsorption technology that has been around for 70 years. So we take the silica gel and put it into a big rotor that only rotates like seven or nine RPM a minute. And then we we pull the humid air through that, and then the silica gel will absorb all the water in the air. And then we distribute the dry air into the turbine or to a structure. And as this, you know, big uh, rotor slowly rotates, it it it, come, it passes by um, um, a heat exchanger or heat module, sorry, that more than say evaporates or, I can say or burns off the water that we have just absorbed and then send that hot and humid air outside the structure. And this can go on and on. You know, we have, we have uh, some of our, uh, machines been running like you know sixty or seventy you know uh, thousand operational hours. and then you need just to go out once in a year and replace, replace a filter. Um, so that's within the service manual. And if you're offshore, you know there's not a lot of dust in the air, then you can look at the filter, and maybe just you know put it back, but then uh, otherwise you replace it. Occasionally there might be a, a drive belt or a fan or something that, you know, that tears out after, you know, 40 or 50,000 hours, then you can replace that. So in short, these machines needs needs inspection once in a year.
0: And so doing the math here in my head, uh, running 24 seven for a year is about what, 7,500 hours or so? So you're talking-
2: But not these machines, yeah, exactly. But these machines don't necessarily always run, you know, 24 seven. So uh, either they come with a Hygrostat, um, and then you can say if if, if humidity reach a certain uh, limit, then the machine starts, runs for a few hours, stops again until the humidity drops, um, gotcha. and then of course you no know, builds it up again. So it can maybe you know, run you know, three or four hours, you know, within you know twenty four hours. Something like that.
0: Okay, so you're saying with a 70000 year life, that's maybe fifteen years. I yeah, mean, yeah, you could do that. Depending on yeah. how how often exactly. they are doing it. Yes, wow. okay. or if
2: you want to run it twenty four seven, we have a technology where we where we create um, actually a patent technology where we create an overpressure inside the turbine. Um, so we actually you know say then we then uh, we pull a little bit of air up, out from uh, in from the outside, dry that, and then send that in. And and that into the into the turbine. So with that overpressure, more or less, we seal off the entire turbine, and and all the dry air will travel up through the tower, and then you you know uh, you know sneak out around the yaw or whatever. But instead of you know having other you know say say polluted air coming in, that has to run twenty four seven. But we we sell that to uh, you know say different OEMs, and uh, and with a service manual, they'll have to go out you know. Yeah, once every year and maybe every five years replace some of the main components and then it should be fine for 25 years.
0: Wow. And so what is talk a little more about the overpressure? I mean, what's the main advantage of that just I mean, just sort of like pushing the elements out. Is that a simplistic way of of viewing it?
2: Yeah, because uh, if you don't have this overpressure, you know, for, for, you know, for. uh, for an onshore turbine, for instance, um, then you need also for for an offshore turbine, sorry, <laughs> then in order to distribute the air properly, you actually need to have a hundred meter of ducting all the way up, and then have the dry air more or less drizzling down if, uh, through the structure. If you have the overpressure, the dry air will climb up itself, so you you don't need to install all of this, you know, extra pipes, and then so you have that that ceiling. And for offshore. When we do this, we can also um, 100% efficiently uh, desalt the air. Because if you just put a, a, a filter to get the salt out, that will not work. And in best case, that manual filter will clog, and then uh, you have a problem later on. When we have this, when we do the overpressure and pulling the air out from the outside, we will we semi-dry the air, so to speak, and then the water. Sorry, the salt in the air changes form and, and, and crystallizes. Uh, when we dry it, uh, I think it's below 55%. And then we can more or less say, pull the salt crystals out in a tray. And then we can, sell, so, we can send salt-free air into the offshore turbine.
0: And so the, the dry air climbs to the top naturally just because it's less dense than, this, than the humid air. Is that right?
2: No, just because you have the overpressure, then the, it will climb up. So the salt system doesn't have a filter
1: on it as much as it just – the particulates actually fall out of the air, so you don't clog anything. Is that the the design of the system?
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: That's really clever, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these systems sound so remarkable. And I think one of the questions that I've heard from uh, people I've talked to in the wind turbine industry is, well, how big is the system? Is it some massive piece of equipment or what relative size? Say I have like a a one, two megawatt kind of wind turbine. What size is, is the system and where is it installed inside the turbine?
2: So depending on what you want to protect. So, you know, everything goes to like, you know, this kind of you know box, like you know, it's maybe like a moving box, cardboard kind of thing size, and up to uh, you know American you uh, know uh, American sized refrigerator, you know double door, Um that that's that that's the sizes of the 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 units we do for 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 the wind industry. We also do for other industries, and then we are up to forty feet container sizes. You know, if you want to dry, if you want to, uh, that's typically. For example, you know, for pharmaceuticals or for the um, for the lithium battery productions, where you need to have a lot of dry air in order to protect the quality of, of the batteries. But for turbines, yeah, it's 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 these you know this this uh, range of, of sizes. You normally will install one in the bottom of the tower, um, to protect that that entire. And depending on the design of the turbine, maybe you want to install. A dehumidifier humidifier also up in the cell to protect some vital impo- uh, components, and we also some OEMs also want to put a dehumidifier into the hub. Uh, if you have a direct drive, for instance, you know you have the stator, and so that's extremely critical. And there could also be cases where you may want to, you say, keep the inside of the blades dry as well, because there's a tendency of a lot of, you know, a lot of mold building up into the blades.
0: Gotcha. And so I assume most of this work is done in the factory or are, are some companies retrofitting this? I'm sure if it's offshore, they're taking care of this before it ships out, right? So that's a
2: part of the integrated design. And we all, so with the OEMs, of course, we need to understand you know, how the cooling works and the, the other st- design specifications. Because if they, if they cool the entire nacelle and just you know, pull in, you know, say, gazillions of cubic meters of air uh, on an hourly basis, of course, you know, our dehumidifier. Cannot you know, say <laughs> uh, win over that system? So that's something we need to discuss. Um, but then you know it can also be retrofitted if we can fit it through the door, um, you know, in through the tower. Um, we so we talk. We are now uh, doing a, a, some retrofits uh, with with various clients, and then basically we give them a manual. To the service technicians, and then they can go out and do it themselves. It's not complicated.
1: So, Michael, where are you selling the system to now? Do you, are you selling it directly to OEMs, or is it mostly to operators? And, and what parts of the world are you selling the system to?
2: So, we selling this, you know, this system globally, um, and we work with uh, most of the OEMs. And then we are now starting up, you know, client relay, you know, starting up business with some of the larger. Um, asset owners as well that also uh, have their own service organizations. They are extremely keen on extending the the lifetime of the of the turbines. No, some even have a strategy that goes up to forty or even fifty years a lifetime on the turbines.
0: So my last question here for you, Michael, is that you know we know we have some folks uh, who work in insurance um, trying to just like stay ahead and do their due diligence do, and do their due diligence. So it sounds like this is one, another one of those pieces that is definitely something that's going to be on insurers radar already is obviously. But, you know, do you see this continuing to be more of a of a of a requirement of something that's just like, look, this is going to make financial sense in the long run? Like when you talk about savings for coatings and then obviously just hedging your bets in the future for not having some of these issues, like you said, chipping a you know, taking a paint chip off while doing a repair that is that's that little inroad for rust to just go crazy. Right.
2: Yeah, I, I basically, I just have, you know, you know, one good piece of advice, to, you know, to the insurance companies and also to the financiers and uh, uh, owners, engineers. And that is put in a simple line into your requirements, a clause saying that relative humidity should never exceed 60 percent during transport, construction and operations. Then you know, let the owner or the OEM decide on how they want to solve this issue. And um, then you can sleep, you know, you can sleep well at night uh, having this clause in.
0: That makes, yeah, that makes sense. Because like you said, there could be different solutions for different people. And But as long as that's there, then they can figure out how they want to take care of it.
2: Exactly. We see, you know, if, if, if you have humidity above 60%, that's where you see mold start building up. You see corrosion. You will also see, you know, the, you know, electrical failure start, you know, starting at that point. And by just putting in, you know, say a speed limit of 60%, you should be okay.
0: Got it. Got it. That's good advice. Well, Michael, where can people follow up with you and with Coats?
2: Yeah, you can check us out on our website, Coats.com. And there you can also uh, find us on our for for LinkedIn company page.
0: All right. So for everyone listening, we will link in the description below, no matter where you're listening or watching, uh, so you can follow up with uh, Michael Holm and learn more about Coats. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show with us and chatting.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: All right. So moving on, we got one last topic here for today. We appreciate uh, Michael's time. The great, great talk with him really in depth about humidity because it is a big deal. Um, we're going to talk about GE and their lawsuit against Siemens Gamesa. So uh, looks like a preliminary ruling which Siemens Gamesa is going to appeal uh, that they've infringed one of these two patents held by GE here in the US. Um, as far as zero, zero voltage ride through. So the patent number here is in case you want to go look it up, uh, all you patent nerds, uh, 7,629,705 is the patent number. Um, Alan, you pull patents all the time to learn yeah. about other companies technology, which is incredibly nerdy, <laughs> yeah. but you know, in char- in character on brand for you. Um, where do you fall on this patent lawsuit and, and what's really at stake here for Siemens Gamesa?
1: Well it, this is really fascinating because usually large companies are very careful about crossing patent territory and they have typically a staff of uh, corporate attorneys, one or two of which are are patent experts who search the art and if I'm Siemens Gamesa, anytime there's a Vestas or a GE or a, or a Nordex or a Sizzlon patent that's published, I'm going to read it and try to pass it along to the people in my engineering organization and say, hey, here's the latest and greatest from our competition, just so you know. And that has sort of two effects. One, it gives you the state of what the industry is and what your competitors are doing. But two, it tells you where you can't go. All right. So if you're, if you're, if you happen to be uh, you know secondarily developing a particular widget that let's just say GE has already patented, well, you're kind of stuck. So you have to either buy rights to the patent from GE or figure out another way to to solve this problem. So getting into these patent disputes is really unusual at, at, between two large smart, corporations that have a lot of patent attorneys and to to let it and secondarily sort of led to get to this level of now they're suing each other in a uk court which is gets to be expensive and it's in the press and everybody is unhappy and uh you know you'd like to settle these things outside the courtroom ideally so there's something more to the story that I, i can't really put my fingers on yet is it a territorial thing in the U.K. because uh, of the offshore wind development? Is GE trying to stake its territory and kind of shove Siemens out from even bidding for jobs? Which, which could happen. I mean, you could get a settlement which would say, hey, Siemens Gamesa is infringed on a GE patent. Therefore, they are prohibited from uh, selling a wind turbine in the United Kingdom for five years. That would really hurt Siemens. That would not be good. And and vice versa, right? That the roles reversed, GE would hate it too. So those are the kind of outcomes here, and you're really playing with fire, because once you're bringing a judge in in these patent disputes, you're never really sure where it's going to go. Uh, that's the trouble is that you just don't. The outcome is one of a thousand different ways it can go, and if it goes sideways on you, if you're GE and uh, you know the, the judge says, "Hey, this is frivolous," and starts loving fines against you, you know, that's, that's, that's not a good day either. So Dan, do you see how this, why this would rarely get to this stage is because there's so many barriers to, to stop this from happening. It's fascinating to see it get this far.
0: Yeah, so you're saying that internally, like in-house, their lawyers are probably going to check any new technologies they make to make sure they're compatible with existing patents? That, that seems Absolutely. like a sensible yeah. process. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, you have to. Uh, you have to because the, the downside costs of that are so enormous. And uh, attorneys are always, in my opinion, attorneys are always the most cautious people on the planet, right? Uh, so you kind of get this downward uh, direction of, of patents In uh, an aircraft company, it tends to work like this: uh, the patent attorney will see what. Let's say I work for Boeing, and I guess, and there's some Airbus patent. They'll and then they'll distribute it around. They'll say, hey guys, this is what's going on. Make sure you don't screw up here and cost us a bunch of money because you're copying on an Airbus patent. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's why you have those uh, corporate patent attorney people on staff is to avoid hundreds of millions or billion dollar lawsuits. It can break your company. And, and yeah. And if you do, you know, in theory, steal intellectual property, you ship should pay a penalty for that. It, it's, it's, it, it, is a, it is a piece of property. It's sort of a non-tangible piece of property, but it's a, it's a piece of property. It's, it's a result of your hard earned work and efforts. And that's why there's, you know, the patent law in the United States is part of the constitution. So uh, it, it is so embedded in a lot of different governments. It, it's, it's taken very seriously. So once you get to this level, you're not playing anymore, right? This is, this is uh, big time stuff, uh, with high-power lawyers and a lot of researchers and uh, supporting cast there. And you just don't want to be mm-hmm. there. So do you, you think yeah. this is going to go on much longer? Do you think you think see, after this first judgment? Because it sounds like – doesn't it sound like uh, Gamesa or Seamus Gamesa is going to appeal, like bring it to the next level?
0: Yeah, they are. They, are, they do intend to appeal. And, of course, uh, so there were two patents. The one I uh, listed off, number 7629705, that one was not infringed, uh, the judge determined. The one that was infringed was their low voltage ride through technology, not the zero ride through. So the low voltage patent 6921985, that one is the one that they said they've infringed (laughs) if you're going to go pull patents. but yeah, it does. You know, I don't know what the damages would be. Like, obviously, that they haven't gotten to that stage of the lawsuit yet. But you're right. I mean, it, I'm sure they're nervous about what's at stake here. Um, and sure. I don't know. I don't know how this technology works. So it's not like I know. Hey, they're gonna have to dig up this and replace that, or you know, swap out these kind of. I'm not sure how that works. But, um, but yeah, there's going to be some some significant damage, I guess, if if this uh, ruling sticks. So we'll yes. have to see how it plays out. So that's going to do it for this week's uh, Uptime Podcast. Thanks again to our guest, uh, Michael Holm from Coats. Again, check out the show notes or description where you can learn more about him and their company. Um, Be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which you'll find in the show notes or description of this podcast. And subscribe to Rosemary Barnes, uh, who couldn't make it today, but she will be back next week. And you'll find her awesome YouTube channel uh, in the show notes as well. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you listen. And we will see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our strike tape LPS upgrade. The next time your crews are going up on ropes, learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.